Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. My name is Mike Wong, your host, and today I'm going to bring you audio from day five of five of the DPS conference. DPS is the Division for Planetary Sciences meeting of the American Astronomical Society. It's an annual conference that bounces around every single year. This year it was in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I've released two other episodes with audio from DPS. The first was episode 50, which was an advanced release of day four's interviews at DPS. Uh, This was because on day four, we had a big Star Trek announcement about the new Star Trek animated series called Lower Decks. And I decided to interview a bunch of planetary scientists randomly passing by in the exhibit hall. And that was a lot of fun. You should go back and listen to people's gut reactions when they first heard the news that CBS was coming up with a new animated comedy series. That was a fun conversation. Now, the first three days of DPS, I recorded Captain's Logs, and you can listen to those in episode 54. These are mostly monologues of me recounting my time at DPS, the fun conversations that I had, the cool Star Trek connections that I made, and the amazing science that I learned. On day five of the meeting, though, I sat down with three other scientists. In the order you'll hear them, they are Dr. Peter Gao, whom you've most likely heard if you've listened to this podcast before, Dr. Laura Mayorga, and she was on episode 50, part of that uh, day four interview session about the Lower Decks comedy show, and a brand new guest, Danica Adams. All three scientists are planetary scientists studying various processes on planets, trying to understand the strange new worlds that we are investigating in real life today. Without further ado, let's jump to the conversation. We had to move. I was going to do it on the couches out there, but it was picking up the vibrations from the escalator. Wow. That, that table was actually shaking. And it That's was pretty incredible. Yeah, not not that great. But yay, we're here. <sighs> Peter just yawned. Duh. Are you tired? I am so tired. Why are you tired? Uh I've gotten an average about five and a half hours of sleep this week every night. Do you want to explain yourself? I, I don't need to explain myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you've been going hard. Been living life. I've been know. living. I've been. I've been. You Chatted know, up. networking. I've been. I've been selling myself. <laughs> Let's talk about that. So you're at a very critical stage of your career. That's right. And you're what's called a postdoc. Uh, now, for those of you who aren't in academia, postdoc is like a weird. You don't really think about what that means too much. So what does that mean to be a postdoc? Well. A postdoc is like a transition period in your life between something that seems permanent and something that is perhaps permanent. In academia, you essentially start off, sometimes you start researching in undergrad, but usually you start off researching in grad school. And if you make the decision to continue along the academic road, then you'll go on to become a postdoc, where you have the opportunity to do a lot of research and connect with a lot of more senior people. 
And from there, you'll have to try very hard to get a permanent position in the field, be it a professor or a scientist. We also have Laura Mayorga here, who you may have heard on the Day 4 podcast. <laughs> She's also a postdoc. Laura, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Because you haven't been on the podcast quite as much as Peter has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm Laura Mayorga. I grew up in Seattle. I'm currently a postdoc at Harvard as a Harvard Future Faculty Leaders Fellow. Woo-woo. Right? Yeah. I always like describing being a postdoc with a doctor analogy. So, like, you go to med school and, like, you get your, your medical degree, and then you go to residency, mm. and then you can become, like, a full-fledged doctor. So, like, a residency, you're still, like, you know, working with patients and doing that kind of thing, but you have, like, oversight from somebody, from an actual, like, doctor. Um, so postdocs kind of like that. We're doing our residencies, essentially. And we have one last guest here who's not a postdoc yet, maybe in like six months or so. <laughs> no. Danica, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners? Uh, hello, uh, I'm a first year graduate student at Caltech. I did my undergraduate at UC Berkeley, where I started research with the MAVEN team, which is the Mars Atmospheric and Volatile Evolution Mission. And then I worked with Peter Gale and Imke de Patter, uh, looking at the hazes, which is like little particles in the atmosphere, and how they affect the spectra, or how we can look at the atmospheric composition of exoplanets. Excellent. So like I said, you know, six months or so, you, you'll have your PhD <laughs> in your hand, because I feel like uh, you've done a lot more research than at least I did by the time I was a first-year grad student. So yeah. Um, Let's see here. So let's let's keep on going down this uh, postdoc route. So while you're a postdoc, uh, generally you're applying for more permanent positions, as Peter said. So Peter, I heard somewhere that you put in Star Trek references into your faculty applications. Can you tell me about what those references were? So originally there was a very, very blatant reference in my research statement, which is a document where you describe your research to your uh, hiring person, hiring committee, search committee. Uh, and that reference was, well, so let me, let me step back for a moment. So the research statement, yeah, so actually, yeah, how do you write a research statement? That, that was a question that took a lot of pondering. Uh, but at the end of the day, research statement is about what your future vision is for your research and what road you want to go down. A lot less about your actual research you've done in the past, it turns out. So anyway, I split the research statement into multiple parts. The first two parts was about near-term research that was had a lot more solid footing. I had ideas. The last part, which was essentially just one paragraph, was very forward, maybe 20 years down the line, and I talked about looking for habitable planets. And the title of this section was where no one has gone before. So that was a very blatant uh, reference. I then put it out on Twitter whether I should make a blatant reference, and I was contacted by a few people, including assistant professors, to not do that. Perhaps in a jokingly fashion, but even I thought it might be a little too much. Laura, did you respond to this on Twitter? I think I said do it. <laughs> yeah, Laura has that. My, my argument, well, so you were getting a lot of comments, I think, that were sort of publicly like, no, don't do that, because I don't know. I don't think, no, I don't think anyone said no. But somebody like, on yeah. the DM me, you know, on the down low said like, nah, you probably shouldn't do it. Also wear a tie. 
for your uh, interview. Uh, see, I was like, do it, because do you really want to work with somebody who thinks that's like a bad thing? Right. Right. I don't know about this tie thing. I feel like that's like, I don't know. If you're not wearing a tie on a daily basis, it's almost like you're... Uncomfortable. Mis misrepresenting Misrepresenting yourself, yourself. exactly, yeah. And so the same thing uh, applies, you know, what Laura just said. If if you would be misrepresenting yourself by not having a Star Trek reference in your research statement, which I think would be the case for you, <laughs> you should definitely put the Star Trek Maybe reference though. in. Maybe though. Maybe what might actually be better is yeah, sure. I mean, a paper like you know the paper reading and the screening and whatever like that's kind of cut and dry. But if you like get the colloquium talk, like go in the tie if you want to, but that can be a Star Trek tie, and you oh, can have yeah. Star Trek references all over that. Right. Yes. Because I mean, you do these colloquium talks, and it's it's usually like they buy out everybody in the department to come see those, right? So you're gonna be talking to grad students. You're gonna be talking to undergrads. That's right. Oh, I will. Departments, and that's when you really want to show like this is who I am. <laughs> I will definitely put Star Trek references in that, at least one. But so I did end up putting a very subtle reference in the research statement. I'm sure every everybody reading it will not notice it, but there was a word in there that I put it in with the intent of being a Star Trek reference, and it was collective. I use collective to describe a collective of planets that would be nice to, to look at the trend over multiple planets instead of just looking at one specific exoplanet. But that word was there as a, as a Star Trek reference. This being a reference to the board. The board collective. collective. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Mike. It's obvious. <laughs> right. Um, very good. So we've already established on a previous episode that Laura is a big Star Wars fan. Danica, I actually don't know how much science fiction you're into. Do you want to tell us? I've only seen the newer Star Wars, but I've really enjoyed them. I am sad to say I've never seen Star Trek. Not even the reboot? No, not even. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> let, me tell, let me tell you something, girl. Um, well, actually, I think a lot of people, you know, know about Star Trek as this cultural phenomenon and feel like it's hard to break into it because there are well over 700 episodes, there are 13 movies, there's even uh, a really old kind of crappy animated series that you could watch if you want. Mm. Um, yeah, I, know, I went there, we're the animated alien. series is pretty bad. We just alienated like two listeners. <laughs> um, like where James. would you, since you know Danica, yeah. um, because you, you've been working with her on, on the Cloud and Hazes as we've established, um, where would you suggest Danica starts? So there's this episode called Threshold. Uh, no. What? <laughs> no, I don't. Don't watch that episode. Uh, where would where do we start? Well, well, actually, I don't know. We never really talked about your TV habits or entertainment habits. So if you don't mind sharing, what is your favorite uh, TV show or book? Maybe books will help. I guess I'll watch a bit of The Office. Okay. But mostly just with friends, so. Okay. <laughs> we might be into this uh, new comedy Star Trek series then, if, if you like The Office. The Office is a comedy, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, Dwight. Dwight was on The Office. Oh, he was also yeah. in Star Trek. Rain Wilson. Maybe you should start watching Discovery then. I think that's, that's, I mean. Wait, who was he in Star Trek? He was Harry Mudd, the smuggler, right? Wait, smuggler? Oh, yeah. yeah. In the new series. Okay, yeah. yeah. I definitely remember watching that and being like, hey, it's Dwight. And then I didn't realize it was Dwight. 
<laughs> he was also an alien in Galaxy Quest, the best Star Trek movie ever made. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess I recommend Discovery because it's the program with the most modern sensibilities that will appeal to people of this generation. And Dwight's in it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. So, we're here at this conference uh, mainly to share our science with the greater scientific community and also to meet people so that they'll hire us one day. Um, so let's go around and talk about the science that we shared. I think we should just probably go around in this order, Peter, then Danica, then Laura. Then uh, you. Then, then me, I guess. Um, yes. Well, okay. And, and, and this is because, um, Peter, you actually put a Star Trek reference in your talk you know, well, you can explain why and how and, and, and the connection uh, between your science and, yeah. Go ahead, tell yeah, the story. Star Trek. Uh, yeah, so uh, I gave a talk about uh, modeling clouds in exoplanet uh, atmospheres. And the reason to do this is that uh, observations of exoplanet atmospheres are not easy to interpret. They're not straightforward. It's not just various molecules in the atmosphere absorbing light. There's clouds that interfere with that, and so understanding how they form is important. So I did some modeling and tried to fit trends in the cloudiness of exoplanets as a function of a couple of planetary parameters. But very importantly, clouds are not the only particulates in atmospheres. You could have small particles made from photolysis, which is the breaking and polymerizing of various chemical species in the atmosphere. And so I finished my talk saying, here's what I did for clouds, but there's also these other group of, of aerosols. And so the story is to be continued. And I put the, uh, the, uh, a bit of the screenshot of the to be continued title card from the best of both worlds in it. I didn't say Mr. Warfire, which would have been <laughs> more appropriate. But I also didn't make the music with... That would have also been inappropriate. <laughs> dun, 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 and so on. Yeah. I think you're slacking. I think you should have. I should have. I mean, I was. That's right. You know, I was. I was chairing the session afterwards. They can't. They couldn't touch me. They're like, oh yeah, you don't like this. I would. I would do this for every one of you. <laughs> but but the point is, the point is, right? The the story was to be continued, and and now the conclusion went to Danica. Uh, I modeled aggregate hazes in exoplanet atmospheres under Peter, and so here we ran the same model, but uh, considered aggregates where uh, monomers or small particles could coagulate or stick together as they fell through the atmosphere and create larger particles. Uh, previous works had looked at how spherical particles could grow and affect the spectra observations or how the atmosphere compositions affected the light that we see coming back. But uh, when you consider aggregates in their different shape and how they have a different surface area per unit mass, they affect the spectra differently and create a flat slope, which is very unique and characteristic to certain planets. And it had been a mystery for a while, so it was a really fun project to pursue. Yay. So the specific <laughs> exoplanet that you were looking at has this crazy name called... GJ1214b, yes. Yeah. And so you determined that these aggregates were a better fit for what's happening on that planet rather than spherical aerosol particles. Exactly. So, so give the listeners um, a, a mental picture of what they should have in mind 
for an aggregate. Everybody can probably picture a sphere uh, floating <laughs> in the air, but what is an aggregate? Sure, an aggregate has something called a fractal dimension that's less than three. So that describes how fluffy or porous the particle is. So if it's a sphere, then it, the whole thing is just kind of solid and it has a dimension of three. But if you can imagine maybe like a sponge or something with holes through it, it's kind of porous. And so it doesn't quite have a fractal dimension of three. Got sponges floating in exoplanet atmospheres. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Laura, what did you share with the scientific community at this conference? So I've been trying to sort of fill this niche and, and connect the two communities together, the planetary science community and the exoplanet science community, because sometimes we don't speak quite the same language. I'm interested in studying the diversity in exoplanet atmospheres. And in order to be able to recognize that diversity, uh, we sort of had a need to be able to place them in context with the things that we already know. So what I've been doing is using solar system data sets where we can actually resolve the planets, resolve the atmospheres, their surfaces, uh, here in the solar system, of course, and sort of turning that data into something that exoplanet scientists can understand. So basically, I'm throwing away all that resolution and being like, here, these are observations as if they were exoplanets. Um, what, what kind of atmosphere would you guess this planet might have? What kind of changes would it undergo? What kind of future uh, observations of, of, of certain types would look like if this were our object? And since we know all the right answers here, um, we can basically test to see how well we're doing. Um, so previously, I had looked at Jupiter and measured the phase curve as seen by a Cassini flyby. Um, a phase curve is basically just a measure of how the reflectivity changes as a function of like illumination angle. Um, so if it's like a full moon, for example, like that's, that's phase zero. And then if it goes to quarter phase, that's phase nine. But in all these images of Jupiter I had, um, the Galilean satellites would occasionally like come into the field of view of the camera. And so the Galilean satellites are actually really good analogs for icy terrestrial exoplanets. And in those cases, the surface would be an important contributor rather than like an atmosphere for like a giant planet to the reflected signal we would get. And the Galilean satellites are actually quite diverse, so it's sort, of, it's sort of important to get these as good comparisons for what we might actually find out there in the rest of the galaxy. Wonderful. What about you, Mike? What did I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I presented some work that uh, sort of at the tail end of my time at Caltech uh, I've been working on and have now been passing on to Danica, who will uh, take it in full force and, and, and pursue it. It has to do with early Mars, and Mars is very intriguing because it may have once been much more like Earth. Today, Mars is a very cold and very dry place with an extremely thin atmosphere, but Four billion years ago, it may have had a much thicker atmosphere, or almost certainly did have a much thicker atmosphere, and possibly running water across its surface. And in order to understand our, our place in the universe, we want to know where else life can emerge within our solar system and also beyond on the exoplanets um, that we hope to be characterizing in the near future. And so one critical piece of life is nitrogen. And nitrogen comes in two different forms, accessible nitrogen and inaccessible nitrogen. And most of the nitrogen that we're familiar with in the air is inaccessible to us because it's in the form of two nitrogen atoms triple bonded to each other in this very tight grip that, that can't really be broken apart except for very sophisticated 
already highly evolved biological means. Um, but before biology evolved, where did, where did accessible nitrogen come from? And it takes uh, very energetic events or particles or, or things like lightning to actually break apart this nitrogen molecule into, into more accessible forms. And so Danik and I have been studying uh, the amount of lightning that would have occurred on a four billion year old Mars with a northern hemispheric ocean, which would drive storms, and that's where lightning comes from. And, and then the chemistry that ensues after that lightning to see how much of this accessible nitrogen flows into the ocean and is available for the very first life forms on Mars if, if, if they were there. Well, I don't want to run us uh, too long because I'm sure we're all very tired of talking after five days of conferencing. Uh, so any closing thoughts, maybe something that surprised you about DPS or the, the coolest thing that you learned here or the coolest person that you met? I was really excited by the networking opportunities. So I had been to larger conferences such as AGU, the American Geophysical Union, or even the AOGS, the America Oceana Geosciences. And so at those meetings, there were thousands of people and it was just so hectic that I never really had a chance to meet people outside of my already existing network. And so here, Peter and Mike and everyone really helped me, uh, helped introduce me to new people that I hadn't met before. And the small size of DPS was a great opportunity. My favorite talk was probably learning about the proton auroras at Mars. Uh, there was a large solar event that happened in September, 2017. And so that caused the proton aurora to shine throughout uh, almost an entire hemisphere of Mars, which is very unique, and it was 25 times brighter than any other event they've seen, which is just awesome. Yeah, that's really great. Um, just to follow up on that a little bit. Yeah. So aurora on Earth, they're mainly confined to the polar regions, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have a, this magnetic field that funnels uh, energetic particles only into near the North Pole and the South Pole. Does it happen in the South Pole too? It probably yes. does. Okay, but there's like not very many people there. It's just uh, <laughs> the polar bears in Antarctica. Polar bears do live in Antarctica. No, they're right? nope. only penguins. Damn it. Okay, <laughs> the penguins in Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> The penguins in Antarctica uh, see glorious um, uh, north southern lights. <laughs> My goodness, I'm having a hard time with these aurora. But anyway, um, but you know, here in Tennessee or even in Boston or um, in California or Seattle, we don't see that because we're not close enough to the poles. For mm -hmm. Mars, there's no magnetic fields, right? That so, is true. Well, so actually, they have crustal fields. And so on the day side, the crustal fields are too weak to stop the solar wind from coming in. So they tend to get this proton aurora that's caused by the solar wind or mostly energetic protons hitting the planet. But then on the night side, you have different magnetic topology or shapes of magnetic fields that can interact with that plasma and bring it down towards the surface. So field lines that are open or connect the surface or atmosphere out to space allow solar wind particles to actually flow down and create an aurora that's called the diffuse aurora. They also have uh, a different aurora called the discrete aurora, where closed fields are like loops that connect two spots on the surface and have like an arc extending to space. Those can reconnect with the solar wind magnetic field, and then that also creates a different type of aurora. So there's actually three auroras at Mars, whereas at Earth we only see the one that happens along open field lines near the poles. See, this is why I say you're going to get your PhD in six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very cool. So one of the things that I think was particularly special about this DPS meeting is that it was the 50th 
Um, so there was a lot more historical, uh, a lot of the plenaries on the first day were all historical plenaries. And it was also, you know, it's pretty funny, right? Because they're, 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 of course, telling us how much it's grown and how much it's changed. But also you start to hear about all the shenanigans people used to get up to. So I think one of the stories that was particularly funny was about the DPS uh, that happened on a Halloween. It was actually on a Halloween, and it's never been on a Halloween since, because the idea that was initially presented was that during uh, NASA night, when the NASA folks were uh, updating us on you know, what NASA was up to, apparently someone had gotten someone unaffiliated with the DPS to wear a Grim Reaper costume and stand up on stage with them. This was promptly corrected by two very notable people in the field that in fact it was two people and it was them <laughs> who were affiliated with the DPS. Also I think what was really cool was seeing all the results from Hayabusa at two at Ryugu, which I mean I know, I know we've all seen like pictures from Curiosity and from Mars, but like it's on an asteroid and it's like jumping around and making these measurements. It's like a completely different surface from anything we've really gotten to image up close. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, we got to see some of those pictures that it took and sent back to Earth. And when those images were shown, I immediately turned to Peter, who was sitting next to me, and I was like, Peter, lens flares! <laughs> and Peter said, Who let J.J. Abrams direct reality? <laughs> I guess the one thing that was um, interesting and that continues to blow my mind is the complexity of Pluto's atmosphere. Pluto's atmosphere is... It's just a mix of so many processes going on. Because it's so dilute or low pressure, low density, its constituents matter a lot. So by constituents, I mean the chemical species and the aerosols that are in this atmosphere. So the way this works is that Pluto has a fairly low pressure atmosphere. It's only one pascal, which is one one hundred thousandths of Earth's atmospheric pressure. Okay, so very low pressure, mostly made of nitrogen with a bit of methane in it. Now this is very similar to another famous atmosphere in the solar system, which is Titan, and nitrogen and methane and sunlight come together and form the haze around Titan. So Pluto also has a haze, and it turns out that the haze affects the temperature in the atmosphere by heating or cooling it through interactions with sunlight. At the same time, the chemistry, the chemical species also can condense on these aerosols. So everything is now starting to be tied together. Now Pluto's atmosphere is forced by the fact that it has a very eccentric orbit, and so there's a chance that the atmospheric pressure changes wildly through a Pluto year, which is about 250 years-ish. So there were some interesting talks today looking at how changes in the Pluto atmosphere pressure would affect the haze, would affect the chemistry. And what happens is if the pressure decreases enough, then the haze might disappear, or their formation rate would be much lower. But this would then control the temperature, because the haze controls the temperature, and they also control the chemistry, which controls the formation of the haze. So everything is super connected. I haven't even mentioned the surface, which is covered certain areas by what looks like haze deposits but not others. It's a global haze, so why are different parts different? Why aren't there just a blanket of haze across the whole uh, not planet? So it's a big mystery, and that's fascinating. 
Sounds like a mystery that you should solve. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for joining me and indulging me in recording for day five of DPS. And we'll see you out there. That concludes episode 55 of Strange New Worlds and the recordings from DPS 2018. My goal for bringing you content from scientific meetings is to give you a glimpse at one of science's most time-honored traditions, sharing our research with others. Unlike a Star Trek convention, where there are celebrity guests and convention attendees, scientists at a conference are simultaneously the celebrities and the audience. We each have our own novel updates to share, and we each have so much to learn from one another. By the end of a five-day conference like DPS, most of us are wiped out. But I'm glad that Peter, Laura, and Danica were able to spend a little time with me to recap the conference and share their excitement for research and Star Trek with you. I'm wishing Peter and everyone else who's on the scientific job market this fall all the success in the universe. Kapla, and I'll see you out there. Did you know there is a Michael Wong who is a Star Trek hater? Really? Where? I went, I googled Michael Wong Star Trek and I got Star Trek Destroyer.net <laughs> and like a bunch of like articles of like this guy hates Star Trek for reasons. Stardestroyer.net? Yeah. I think that's Not Star Trek Destroyer? Maybe it was Star Trek Destroyer. Maybe it was Star Destroyer. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But I was just like, oh man, good thing you're not the other, 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 other Mike Wong. <laughs> it's the mirror universe, Mike Wong. <laughs> oh yeah, it must be the mirror. Uh, I don't know what his middle name is. Michael Wong is the creator of the website Stardestroyer.net, which is best known for its comparison of the technology of Star Wars versus that of Star Trek. I hate it when people do that. It's just like, <laughs> not even the same you, physics guys. Yeah. <laughs> physics rules are different. <laughs> he argues that the Galactic Empire would easily defeat the United Federation of Planets. No shit. I mean, I mean they have the force. The <laughs> <laughs> they're, also, they're also evil. Like, thanks, dude. I see what team you play. There's on. like the Death Star. <laughs> yeah, but we have we have we have our ways. We have a cube. <laughs>